Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Nicole. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nicole. Hello there, Shelly. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. I got my newest tattoo yesterday. I said, <laughs> I, I do, but you know what? It was, this is my fifth tattoo. It was so painful. Was it? Yeah. Like I was so caught off guard because I always sit great through tattoos. I handle it really well. And the outlining was okay. But then as soon as she started the shading, it started to hurt and then it got worse. And then by the end, I was like shaking and ready to puke. Ooh, that bad. <laughs> yeah. And I like, I never had that happen before when getting a tattoo. Usually it's not a problem for me. Right. I've um, heard of people having, getting, you know, responsive like that where they throw up or mm-hmm. You know, or just like, you just have to stop no matter what's happening. Yeah. The artist was like, well, we could stop. And then you come back another day to finish it. And I was like, you have to finish it now because if we stop, I won't come back. Like, I just won't. Right, right, right. right, right. (laughs) I'm committed because I'm here. Yeah. Like, no, we're getting this done now. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yep. But I'm happy with it. It's worth it. It's beautiful. I love it. It's funny. Like they say, once you get one, you want another. Right. They're kind of addicting. But I always wait like a good like two to three years. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you take your time and you think about them and. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fun, fun, fun. How's the feeling now? You know, sore, but not too bad. The healing, it just looks gross when it's healing. Right. Well, oh, well, at least it's winter. Yeah. (laughs) No one's going to see anything right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This week we're talking with Dr. Trill from Free to Feed. Have you heard of them? Free to Feed? Yes, I have. Yeah. I actually signed up to take their course. I just haven't started on it yet. (laughs) Yeah. But they are a company that specializes in breastfeeding with allergies. Like that's her thing. That's Dr. Trill's thing. And she does classes and one-on-one consults. She's also an IBCLC as well as a doctor. So excited about that interview. Very exciting. Yes. But let's start with our favorite of the week. Okay. Do you want to go first? Sure. So I enjoy a glass of wine now and then. And one that my daughter-in-law had recently gotten me and I've had it before is the, um, velvet devil. Mm -hmm. And it's a dark red. I think it's a Merlot. So it's a Merlot. I've had it. Yep. Mm -hmm. So delicious. So good. So rich. So smooth. It's a really good quality wine for not a lot of money and I'm loving it. Yeah. That one is really good. I do, that's on one of the few that I will buy. Yeah, it's so good. For me, wine is all about balancing like what is the cheapest but best tasting wine I can afford. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. You're like, all right, I got a $15 cap on this sucker. Where is it going to go? Exactly. Yeah. All right. So the velvet devil for those of you wine drinkers out there, give it a try. Yes. How about you? Um, I guess mine's an activity. So I started knitting, (laughs) of course. (laughs) You are so active. Um, I started knitting a temperature blanket. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. Talk to me about it. So it's, I picked out 11 colors and each color gets like a temperature range. So zero to 10, 10 to 20 degrees, 20 to 30 degrees. And every day you take the highest temperature of the day and you knit two rows in that corresponding color. So you're knitting according to the temperature. So at the end, so it's a year long project. And then at the end of the year, you can like see how miserable and cold you were for <laughs> oh, that's a riot. Oh, but so cool. Yeah, I'm excited. It got me, you know, it's just some, it's only knitting, it's only the knit stitch. So it's something like that I can do pretty brainless while right. watching a show or something. Right. And I went shopping with my friend. She's going to do hers too, only she crochets. Yeah, which is so much faster than knitting. So we didn't buy the yarn and stuff until the end of January. So I was talking to her the other day and she's like, well, where are you at? And I'm like, I'm on January 7th. And she's like, I'm done with January. And I'm like, "Mm, crocheting. (laughs) That's awesome, though. Can't compete. (laughs) That's so funny. I can do neither of those. So good for both of you. I'm always envious of people who can make things like that. I not at all. Can I do that? Well, you can make a really cute outfit with great accessories. And I (laughs) can't. I'm like, do I have to change on my scrubs? Really? Like and put an outfit together? Uh, well, this is, you know, again, we're total opposites because I was having like, (laughs) I was supposed to go to a baby shower and I was having anxiety over it. Cause I'm like, I don't know what to wear. I don't don't have anything to wear. I don't want to wear anything. I just want to either put on my sweatpants or my scrubs. I don't, Uh, or my workout clothes. I don't want to wear anything else. Right. Yeah. I get it. Got your talents. (laughs) Well, there are few, (laughs) but I clothes and accessories and shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So let's look into our question of the week. Yes. So this question is actually one that got submitted a few times. So obviously it's the question of the week for real. The question is, I got my period and my milk supply dipped. What can I do? Uh, so, and I always get that Usually if I have like a family that has a baby that's, you know, three months or older and they randomly text me or message me like, oh my gosh, my milk supply just like tanked. I don't know what happened. My first question is always, did you get your period back? Right. (laughs) And most of the time they'll say, how do you know? Or sometimes they'll be like, no, I haven't gotten it back. And then they'll message me the next day and (laughs) be like, guess what I just got? Right. Right. So it is pretty normal to experience a dip in the milk supply when you get your period. It's just a lot of hormones are shifting around. And the good news is most of the time it's very temporary. The dip is usually worst with your first cycle and not as bad with your other cycles. But there's a lot of research showing that if you take magnesium 500 milligrams a day with some calcium, that will work to prevent the dip in milk supply. 
And if you're worried about it coming back up, you can add in some extra pumping sessions after the baby feeds at the breast. Very good question. Did that happen to you? No, because my breastfeeding experiences weren't long enough for that. Mm -hmm. Mine were like too long. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I always, my kids always weaned and then I would get my period back. I would never have my period when I was breastfeeding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, you never know. I, my periods came quick, but my nursing was short. My nursing was really short. I had such difficulties. So I didn't experience anything long-term. My longest breastfeeder was my first and he was four and a half months. So that was not a long time. I mean, still great. And, but compared to what I wanted, you know, that whole expectation thing, it didn't feel long enough for me. Right. But I look back and I'm like, I did the best I could. And that's all we can do. That's all we can do. That's right. (laughs) And next up, we'll be speaking with Dr. Trill. Very good. This week, our guest is Dr. Trill. She is the founder of Rita Feed, and I'm so excited to have her here to talk to us about allergies and breastfeeding. Welcome, Trill. Thank you so much for having me, Shelly. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So my journey kind of starts while I was in the middle of grad school. So I was pursuing a PhD in cellular molecular biology. I absolutely love science. I'm very, very nerdy. And I was studying in grad school protein analysis to help ovarian cancer patients be re-susceptible to chemotherapy. So my job was pretty cool. And I was finishing up my last year of grad school writing my dissertation. And my husband and I decided to start our family, which is a fun time to have a baby when you're writing a dissertation and trying to finish grad school. Our oldest daughter, June, had awful colic. Like she screamed all of the time and I'll say colic in the quotation marks. And so we took her in and said, hey, you know, I think something's wrong. Like she's just inconsolable. And I was really dismissed and just told like, yep, babies cry. Good luck with that. Mm -hmm. High five and sent back home. And so we went through that for several weeks and eventually when she was three weeks old, we woke up to find her completely covered in eczema from head to toe with bloody diaper after bloody diaper. And I was then terrified. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, now I broke her officially. (laughs) Um, So uh, I don't know what I did. Uh, I was breastfeeding and I felt like I was just starting to get the handle of breastfeeding because it was hard for us as it is, I think, for many families. Mm -hmm. And so I took her back and said, okay, I broke her. Please help me. And I was, again, really dismissed. And they were like, yeah, I mean, maybe we'll switch the formula or it could be that your baby is reacting to cow's milk protein transferred to your breast milk. Your baby may have an allergy to cow's milk. And my mind was blown. Even as a protein expert, I had no idea that something that I ate could transfer to my breast and elicit an allergic response in my baby. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. Well, I love cheese, but I really want to breastfeed. So I took out all cow's milk protein from my diet. And I continued to breastfeed her and she spiraled. She got worse very quickly. Mm-hmm. And eventually her skin was so bad that um, it was weeping. So the eczema started to crack and weep and get infected. And all that came out of her little body was blood. I think uh, gastroenterologists took pity on the eye bags that I had at that point <laughs> and, and my poor soul. And we were admitted to the hospital eventually. It was a really rough journey in the hospital, as you can imagine, um, being told things like, you know, that my breast milk was poisoning my baby and um, 
did a 24-hour starvation diet, which if you've ever breastfed, you can imagine how hard that is, like literally being the food in the mm-hmm. room with her. Um, and at the end of it, they just said, like, yeah, she has a food allergy. There's not much we can do for you. We can't test her to tell you what it's too. So here's your hypoallergenic formula. It's your only option. And at that point, we started a hypoallergenic formula, um, and I started asking the questions of like, okay, if I can be super honest here, I straight up can't afford this formula. It costs like $50 a can for this special formula for her. And so I went from like feeding her something that hurt her to not being able to afford to feed her at all as a grad student on a very tight budget. And so I started asking the questions of, okay, if you... Can I make hypoallergenic formula? Can I make hypoallergenic breast milk? Can I adjust my diet if it's something that I'm eating that to a point where she would be able to tolerate my breast milk? And the answer was a hesitant, maybe. Mm-hmm. We don't really understand this. Um, we don't know much about it. Here's a laundry list of foods that could be causing your baby an issue. And uh, remove this for several weeks. Continue to give formula. Pump like a mad woman and hope that your baby gets back to the breast eventually. I did all of those things, um, and it was really, really freaking hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were able to get back to the breast, thank goodness, because a lot of families aren't lucky enough to be able to after weeks of auto feeding. At that point, I really, like, I was in the middle of grad school trying to finish my degree and everything else that was going on. I really, like, did the the army thing. I'm an I'm a, uh, army vet. I just, like, mm-hmm. put my head down and got it done. Like... <laughs> <laughs> just just do the thing and get it done. And I breastfed her for a year on this crazy elimination diet. And I do not recommend anybody else does this. And also, just in case somebody's listening and they hop off, your breast milk does not contain foods that you eat for weeks on end. It clears very quickly. And that's something that we know now. I want to caveat that. We can talk about that later. But in my research that I do now. So I just got it done and um, finished grad school graduated, which was a miracle. Three years later, we had our second daughter and she started presenting with the same problems oh, while no. I was breastfeeding her. Mm. And I just could not imagine doing this all over again. And so I started digging into the research and I was like, there's got to be research and people and resources and help to navigate this now three years later. And what I found were lots of other parents and some research and no resources. And I was like, nope. There's no stinking way. So I talked to my husband and I was like, I started digging into this research and I'm really dumbfounded that the research that I'm finding doesn't match any of the information that I was told in the hospital about transference and food allergens that are common for infants and how to really navigate this space. Like nothing matches, um, which is incredibly frustrating and would be a game changer for my next journey. So at the same time, and all of the irony in the world, I was also working for a dairy processing facility um, <laughs> through a, a series of very strange events. Yeah, it's a sign. So, <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculous. Um, so through a series of strange events, when I had my second daughter, I just kind of begun working for a dairy processing facility, um, running their lab. And I learned there when I was only a few weeks postpartum because getting maternity leave and having to go to work very soon. Mm-hmm. And so I was only a few weeks postpartum back at work and I was teaching lab techs how to use the simple little test strip that we have to show whether or not we've accidentally cross-contacted allergens in the facility. So literally like if we're running 
soy milk and cow's milk on the same equipment. You know, these little test strips to show the FDA that we didn't accidentally get soy milk into the cow milk or vice versa. And I was just teaching lab techs how this technology works and how to use it. And I was like, oh my goodness, what if I could test my breast milk? for mm-hmm. soy at any time. And so I ran into a closet as one does and he squirted in the breast milk on this thing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You're like, I'm just going to experiment now. Let's find out. I want to know. I, I like, like it. I want to go eat some food mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm breastfeeding right now. I want to know now. Um, I want to add some creamer in my coffee. Yeah. And so ran into a closet, squirted some breast milk on the thing and it doesn't work. And so start, then I started asking the question of like, okay, why? Why doesn't this work? And the answer to that question ended up being that the test strips that are available for food manufacturers are looking for the whole or close to the whole version of the protein um, for cross contact, right? Like mm-hmm. the just the whole version. Whereas when we consume a protein, we're breaking it down significantly. It's no longer in that whole version anymore. And no one up until this point had cared enough to figure out what do the proteins actually look like after we digest them and transfer them to our breast to elicit a response in our baby. So I worked very hard on getting grant funding and investor funding in order to figure out what does a peanut look like once it enters our breast, right? Because we're not shooting peanuts out of our nipples. Thank goodness. That'd be very painful. Um, but we are transferring very small portions of peanuts to our breast, for example, and all other foods too, which for most babies is very beneficial and a wonderful thing, unless your baby has a food allergy and is reactive to that particular food. And so I spent the last almost four years now, which is crazy to even think about, figuring out what all those proteins exactly look like in the breast, understanding transference. And our goal is to create a test strip that allows parents to test their breast milk for the presence of allergens at home. So then we can eliminate all of this, um, the misinformation and questions around transference and can I breastfeed and is it my breast milk that's mm-hmm. wrong? Um, all of these things that are obstacles for parents, if we just give them the power and the data at home in their hands, then all of that gets alleviated. In the meantime, so there's obviously a lot of science, a lot of work that's had to go into this. So we're working very hard on launching our first test strip, and I'm crazy excited about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the meantime, as I started to build this community and start talking about my work and what I've been really focusing on, we got a lot of feedback from families that were like, can you help me now? Like, I get it. You're doing a test strip. That's cool and all. But can you help me now before your test strips are out? And so the things that have like come to fruition since then has literally just been from meeting with families mm-hmm. and saying like, what do you need? And um, the main things that they need are full support and love and empathy. So we offer one-on-one consults where they can meet with a food allergy expert and deep dive into their journey discuss their feeding options and next steps for strategies in order to empower their journey. Um, we have a multivitamin now. We have an app now. It's been crazy. Um, <laughs> so all of these things that just parents literally said, this is a thing that I need from mm-hmm. free to feed in order to empower my journey. And then we go find the way to do that. So um, <laughs> and it's certainly been really um I learned so much because my goal is never to own a company or launch a multivitamin or mm-hmm. develop an app. But here I am and I've learned a ton. And truly, when I say that, like, I have the best job in the world, like getting to meet with families every day and help them through their journey and get to the other side and know that they're loved and supported and how that feels is just I have the best job in the whole wide world. So that was a really long journey and story. <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate you hanging on for it. Uh, but that's what we're up to now. I'm so inspired. You're like, I'm saving the world <laughs> in different ways. And I'm like, I'm brewing coffee. 
<laughs> we'll do coffee together. That's important yeah, to you. Yeah. But it works. Like I told you before we started recording that I've heard from families that your work and your courses and your consults have been like a game changer. I do feel like food allergies is the latest fad that pediatricians, like anytime a parent says, oh, my baby's fussy, the pediatrician's like, well, you should take dairy out. And it's always dairy. It's always dairy. Take dairy out of your diet. Even if there are no other symptoms, even if there are other obvious reasons for the baby being gassy and fussy, it's always like, I think almost 70 to 80% of families that I work with now as a lactation consultant, they say, oh, I took dairy out a couple weeks ago, whatever, because the baby was gassy and fussy. Even equally, if maybe a little more important on our side is to confirm or deny whether or not food allergies are in fact an issue for baby. Because yes, there are so many other things that can mimic food allergic responses in a baby because the gassiness, the fussiness, you know, mucusy stools, there's, there's a number of things that can occur. And a lot of times to talk to the families and say like, this is something that first you need to go see an IBCLC about because you need to assess latch and lactation and anatomical issues way before cutting something from your diet. I think that this like concept of being able to just blame the parent of like, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's your fault. You, you know, eat too much cheese for a good portion of them. That's likely not the case. And so uh, we also work with a lot of families to rule out that food allergic responses are happening for their baby. And that's just as important. Right. And I think part of it is that, you know, pediatricians are, are overworked too. So. They don't have the resources or the bandwidth or the time to explore why the baby is gassy. So part of it is that part of it is just dismissive. And like you said, it's so easy to just say, well, just take some dairy out and think that, you know, you, you help the problem versus I also, I was talking about this with colleagues too. I feel like there's no more curiosity in the medical community anymore. It's, there's no like, why does this happen? Let's figure it out. It's just like, oh, well, maybe take out some dairy and see if, what, if that helps. Yeah, I think I would totally agree. I think that the main things, just like you said, is the amount of time that pediatricians have with a patient, right? If you only have 15 minutes to meet with a patient, then really like drilling down on lactation issues, as you know, on like the lactation side of things, that takes time. It takes Mm -hmm. time to assess and revise and give physical therapy options and, and all kinds of the anatomical and the lactation side of things and on the food side of things. It takes time for us to navigate whether or not food is actually an issue, make sure that the parent's diet is complete during that time, quickly assess whether or not food allergic responses is even happening for this particular child. So yeah, it's really, really easy to just say like, remove dairy. And for some, that will be helpful and whatever. Um, yay. So you're, we're throwing a, a dart at a very tiny target here. Yes. Um, and... While others then just continue honestly to suffer because they're not actually addressing the root cause of the problem and they're not eating cheese just for funsies. (laughs) So I totally agree. And I I think the second piece of that is that quite frankly, our medical providers just aren't trained in this particular field or trained in this particular part. So I'm sure you see it um, not being effectively trained as it relates to lactation and not being either willing or able or whatever it may be to effectively refer to lactation and make sure that it happens. On our side of things, on the food allergy side of things, what we see is that parents fall in a chasm between gastroenterologists because on the GI side of things, um, that's not actually what's happening in baby. Baby's having an allergic response to its immune system. So they're not trained on the immune system issues. 
And then these babies, if they are having allergic issues, typically they're what's called a non-IgE-mediated allergy, which is also not effectively trained in allergists. And allergists typically um, work on IgE-mediated responses, which is that, like, stereotypical allergy we think about when we're like, I had a peanut and I needed an EpiPen. And um, so they're trained there in, like, testing and EpiPens and, and all of that. But these babies don't fit either of those molds. They're a non-IgE-mediated allergic response. So they fall in a chasm between these two specialists and there's nobody there to catch them. Mm-hmm. And that's where like free to feed accidentally became that net, right? Mm-hmm. Like the goal for me was like, I'm going to share content and I'm going to do research and grants and um, I'm going to create this test strip. Um, and eventually parents were like, no, I need you to be this net that's going to catch mm-hmm. me between these two specialists too. Yeah. And I see that very common in my area. If there is any sort of referrals going on, it is to pediatric GIs who most commonly either just confirm with the pediatrician said, well, try taking dairy out or here's your, you know, special formula. You have to stop breastfeeding, um, which is not the answer in most cases, I think. Yeah. There's a lot of, I think people use the word allergy and intolerance and reaction interchangeably. What is the difference Mm -hmm. between those three? Yeah, super appreciate that. Um, so oh, this is one of the, there are many, there are many places in which like my field has a lot of misinformation and this is one of the big ones. So there are allergies, there are intolerances, and then there is sensitivities. Um, so as it relates to like a sensitivity, a sensitivity is more so like I'm sensitive to when I have caffeine, for example, because it makes me jittery or I'm sensitive to certain chemicals or certain things. And it's just like a very mild, just makes me kind of uncomfortable, right? Um, maybe it makes my mouth itch, for example, or whatever it may be. So on the sensitivity side. On the intolerance side, and intolerance, which is the most common thing that these children get labeled as, they get labeled as, oh, your baby has an intolerance. It's actually not an intolerance. It's truly an allergy. And the reason is because an intolerance is when our body does not make the proper enzymes to break down the proteins that are transferring through our breast and to our baby. And so literally, in order for this to happen, which it can happen, it's incredibly rare and it's almost always caught in the hospital right after baby's born because they will fail to thrive. They will not keep anything down. They will really, really struggle and they will not be released from the hospital typically. If they're not making the enzymes to break down protein, they can't break down any protein, not just cow's milk. So removal of things from your diet is not going to help because they're not going to break down anything. And so that's what an intolerance is. An intolerance is a lack of an enzyme, which is where like typically when we think of intolerance for adults, we think of lactose intolerance. Mm -hmm. Same type of situation where when we're lactose intolerant, we don't make the right enzyme to break down lactose. Again, super crazy rare for actual infants to have that problem because it's literally our whole biology to break down lactose because we're built to breastfeed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... It's very common that parents, I believe, get told that their baby has an intolerance either because um, the provider isn't like educated on the differences. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the allergy side in a second. Um, either because they're not educated well in the difference or because it's an easy way to placate the family to say like, oh, it's just an intolerance. You don't have to worry about it. And that word intolerance smooths things over for the family. And it's like, oh, you know, this is fine. It's going to be great. However, the actual information is, is that if your baby has a true intolerance, they're not going to outgrow it. This is lifelong. 
for those of us who have lactose intolerance, for example, typically we're, we're born, not grown, we're born <laughs> with all of the lactase enzyme that we need to break down lactose as a baby. And as we grow older and older, that enzyme stops being made. And then we just don't make it anymore. So we're not going to outgrow that. We just aren't going to make that enzyme anymore. Same thing with other enzyme deficiencies, where if like your baby's born without the ability to make that enzyme, they're not just going to magically start making that enzyme. They're going to need medication and they're not going to outgrow this issue likely. That's actually like placating isn't truly true if you really dig into what an intolerance is. Now, on the allergy side of things, like I mentioned, we think of when we say allergy, the stereotypical can't bring peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to school because, you know, the ability might have an anaphylactic shock reaction and it may be life-threatening. You'll need an EpiPen and to go to the hospital, right? Mm-hmm. I have my own IgE-mediated allergies too, and I have an EpiPen, all that fun stuff. The interesting thing and the piece that a lot of people are missing is that there are two categories of food allergies. The first is IgE, as we kind of alluded to a little bit ago. The first is IgE, which is that stereotypical allergy. And that simply just means that the IgE is the antibodies that can see the food and elicit a response in the immune system. Mm-hmm. It's just a pathway is all it is. Um, it's a life-threatening pathway, so it's still important, but it is a pathway. The second type of pathway is called a non-IgE-mediated response, which Yay for scientists just name something as like, this is everything but to that. <laughs> so it's a non-IGE mediated response, which just means it doesn't use that pathway. It uses lots of other pathways, most of them cellular. So it uses different cells that are not IGE mediated antib- antibodies in order to elicit response. So almost all, a vast majority of littles who have reactivity, especially very early in life, these bloody stools, mucusy stools, eczema, the reflux, the vomiting, congestion, all of this craziness, almost all of them have non-IgE-mediated allergies to a specific food or foods. The good news is that non-IgE-mediated allergies are almost always outgrown. Hallelujah. Both mm-hmm. of my babies have completely outgrown their food allergies. It's wonderful. And they're free-feeding now. So the fact is that your baby does have an allergy and the type of allergy means that they're going to outgrow it. Yay, fabulous, because the immune system will continue to develop and eventually get to a point where it's like, oh, that thing that I've been freaking out about is not actually something that's trying to hurt me. So I do not have to freak out anymore. And so baby will outgrow it. The downside to a non-IgE-mediated allergy is that it can't be tested for, which is another part of like the misinformation here, is that parents will go in to get a test for an allergy and because baby's vomiting every time that they eat this particular food, for example. And the allergist will do the test and it'll come back negative. They'll mm-hmm. be like, but every time I give my baby avocado, they vomit for hours. And the doctor will be like, yep, not an allergy <laughs> because it doesn't come back positive on a test. Right. The test specifically looks for IgE mediated antibodies. And so that's where like kind of the slew of misinformation is stemming from is that the test only shows you one type of allergy and, um, you know, kind of the, the placating and misinformation around what an intolerance really is. So babies have non-IgE-mediated allergies, and it sucks because that means we can't effectively test for it like we do other allergies, and it's wonderful because they're likely to outgrow it. Mm-hmm. I did with my second. I was told by the pediatrician to eliminate dairy because she had blood in her stool and um, eczema, and she would like projectile vomit. I'm talking like out her nose, out her mouth, and it actually did help her a lot. <laughs> I think yeah. I guess I was one of the lucky ones, and it was something that she did outgrow that she can eat dairy fine now. So it sounds like that's what it was. Yep. 
That's exactly, it sounds like that's exactly what it was. And uh, yes, thank goodness you were one of the lucky ones that like, yep, plasma protein was the issue. That was your only trigger, which is very common for if we are truly dealing with food allergies. Um, one, just like you mentioned, you had more than just the one symptom, right? You had the eczema, you had the projectile vomiting, you had blood in school, all very indicative of um, that's not likely a latch problem, for example, right? Mm-hmm. To give all those problems. And after removing plasma protein, being able to alleviate those symptoms, then, then I'll grow it, which is absolutely fabulous. Mm-hmm. For a lot of families, plasma protein is the most common issue. However, another piece of the misinformation is that it's not the only. So for a lot of families, they find that their baby is reactive to more than one trigger, which isn't super unusual once we dive into this. And one of the other pieces that's really important for families to know is that we transfer everything that we put in our mouth. So anything that we do eat can get to our breast. Doesn't mean it's going to get there every single time, right? Not every single time that I eat chicken is going to end up in my breast milk. But anything that we do eat can transfer to our breast. And it would be weird if like it was very exclusive, right? It would be weird if like only cosmo protein could transfer to our breast or only mm. soy could transfer to our breast. Anything that we can consume can transfer to our breast and any food can be a trigger for a baby. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I really feel like when I eat, insert weird food here, rice or oats, it causes my baby's issues. That's absolutely possible, right? And to listen to your instincts and um, your your parent gut and navigate that and say like, okay, well, if I remove this particular food, does it get me alleviation of symptoms? Um, because unfortunately, we hear a lot of times parents being told that either we don't transfer enough to elicit a response, which is absolutely not the case, or that we only transfer certain proteins, like only dairy and soy can transfer, which is also not the case. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned a few of the symptoms to look for, but what do you have like a list of symptoms that you ask parents, you know, is your baby showing this, this and this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I kind of like to break symptoms down into like primary and secondary. So primary being like the symptom itself and secondary being like a symptom of the symptom, basically. And I'll explain what that means in just a second. So on the outside, the top symptoms that we see for infant food allergies is rashes and eczema. Um, and that can be anywhere on the skin to include their little booty. Um, and then on the inside, on the upper GI side of things, um, we can have acute reactions, which are a little bit faster reactions, which is the um, chronic congestion can be reflux, vomiting, gassiness, discomfort, distended bellies, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then as we get past the belly, we get into lower GI issues, which are more so chronic, which means it takes a little bit longer for them to occur and it takes longer for them to heal once they do occur. Um, and that could be diarrhea, constipation, mucousy stool, bloody stool, and then the secondary symptoms to those problems. So those all being kind of primary problems. Secondary issues then are, for example, if your baby's constantly vomiting, failure to thrive is very possible because they are not keeping enough of the breast milk down or formula down. Um, or if they have the bloody and mucusy stool, that's because of inflammation in the lower GI tract, and that means they're not effectively absorbing the nutrients in what they're consuming, which means that you can end up with failure to thrive simply based on the fact that they're just not absorbing nutrients effectively. The cells in the lower intestine are inflamed and they're not doing their job. Um, so you can get failure to thrive, weight issues. And then another secondary symptom is the quote unquote, call it babies inconsolable. They're trying to tell you, hey, I am very unhappy and we need to talk about this. Um, and that's how they communicate to us. So it is not uncommon for us to meet parents and them to just be ragged, right? Exhausted because their baby cries all hours of the day and night. 
Another secondary symptom that we can end up seeing is feeding refusals and popping off the breast, arcing their back, really being in pain, telling you like, this is the thing I don't like, and I'm going to tell you all about it. So any kind of feeding refusal issues. And then obviously all of this discomfort can lead to sleep disturbances. So um, really bad sleep issues because they're scratching or because um, they're just in pain and they're stooling constantly. We dig into all kinds of like symptom shenanigans uh, on Instagram and on our website about like what to look for, for it to actually be like a red flag for food allergies specifically. Yeah, I love it. And I think it's helpful to have the chart. I do work with a lot of babies where they're like, oh, well, he's a little bit fussy and they tested his diaper for blood and there wasn't any, but that only means there wasn't any in that diaper. Mm-hmm. Right. And there you wasn't. hit on... Yeah. yeah, you hit on a huge, huge part that's so important here is that I just listed like a laundry list of symptoms. Most babies do not hit every one of those symptoms. Most babies do not tick every mark, right? And so if you are like, yeah, but my baby is not failure to thrive. They're chunky little monkeys. That's wonderful. Doesn't mean your baby doesn't have a food allergy. Or right. if you're like, yeah, we tested the stool and it doesn't have blood. It either means that like, yeah, there wasn't blood in that stool at that time that was tested or that like blood and stool isn't one of your symptoms. And that's mm. perfectly normal too. Um, it is less likely for your baby to have every single symptom than it is for them to tick just a couple of those boxes. Um, and unfortunately that's another place where parents can get dismissed where they'll be like, well, your baby's gaining fine or, yes. uh, well, your baby doesn't vomit or, you know, mm. any of these things like, oh, well, it's just a little bit of blood. So that's super common for us to hear too. And I want to mention that, that I just named a crazy ton of symptoms and it's more likely that your baby will only have a couple of them. Right. Yep. And that was the same thing that happened with us. My baby would scream from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. every night for at least three months. And But I was told, well, they're gaining. Everything's fine. You're doing great. Go home. Your baby has colic. Good luck. Goodbye. Yeah. If you have ever thought in your mind, I wish my doctor had to come home with me and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sleep in my home for 24 hours, mm-hmm. you might be dealing with bigger problems. Yeah. The baby would be crying and that would wake up my toddler and she comes in on the bed and all three of us would just sit there and cry. Cry together. <laughs> and I honestly thought it was my fault. Like I thought, that maybe I was too stressed during that pregnancy and now the baby's trying to release all those. Like I kind of blamed myself for it. And of course we do, right? Right. That's that's kind of like the mentality in the the maternal health space is like, Mm -hmm. it's our fault. It's a lot of like mom shaming. And so of course that's where our brains first go. Like, oh, I must have done something wrong. I ate too much of something or too little of something or there was that one time where we moved, it, you know, we moved and I was stressed or whatever it may mm-hmm. be, right? Like we blame ourselves first yeah. um, instead of because we don't have the right support, mm-hmm. right? Because families in general don't have the right support to be told that, you know, this is not your fault. So if you are listening to this, this is not your fault. Yeah. Um, if your little has food allergic responses, you absolutely did not do anything to cause this problem. It is mm-hmm. not your fault. In any way, shape, or form, um, non-IgE-mediated food allergic responses are genetic. Even if you and your husband and the rest of the family or your partner don't have any experiences with food allergies, it's something that can be recessive that we pass down generation to generation, and it's not something we can control. So um, 110%, not your fault that you ended up on this journey. And also, one thing that parents don't care enough of is you're doing an incredible job. 
too, right? Like, like I see you at 2 a.m. in your bed crying with both of your babies. Um, <laughs> just, you know, like, how am I going to get through this? Um, mm-hmm. I truly, wherever you're at in your journey right now, you're doing incredible. And my bra is off to you. So I want to mention that too. Yeah, you have a post on Instagram too where you, I think it was something like if you accidentally eat something that you weren't supposed to on your elimination diet, it doesn't mean that you're a bad mom or anything. Because yes. I see parents beat themselves up all the time. Like oh, they'll like message me in a panic like, oh, I didn't realize that something had dairy in it until after I ate it and now he's fussing and I feel terrible and I, you know, broke him. And, and it's oh. like, it's so hard. It's in everything, especially like soy and dairy. If the food comes out of like a box or a bag, it's probably got dairy or soy in it. One of the two. Yeah. And And if you don't like to cook, yikes. It's hard. It's so hard. It's, it's next to impossible. And that's one of the things that like I am trying to kind of remove the stigma around and really talk about, just like you mentioned in, in that particular post too on, on Instagram. Not only the instances where like we make a mistake, right? We go to Starbucks and we order ourselves a latte and we say like, we shake the barista, like give me oat <laughs> milk, right? Yeah. And then they put whole milk in our latte and we don't realize until we've drank it all mm-hmm. and or even a sip or whatever it may be. And then we beat ourselves up, right? And that's like one, not helpful for, for you and, and your journey. You're doing amazing. And but then like the other side of things that's even a step above and beyond that is families who will consume something, right? Like, and I talk about that too. Like um I remember my second daughter, like we were just starting our journey and I was like, this is, this can't be real. Like there's no way I'm doing this all over again. And so I got like an obscene number of Reese's peanut butter cups because that's my favorite candy. And I had already shared this elimination stuff and I was just like, there's no way. I literally sat in my car and ate a bunch of Reese's peanut butter cups, um, like a bridge troll and hid them all in my car in hopes that my husband wouldn't see them. And of course it elicited a response in my baby. She had a reaction and I was so hard on myself. There's so much guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead what I'm trying to do is just talk about that, right? Like that's okay. You're going to be okay. It's okay. It's you're not a bad parent. If you have eaten something that you know that you did on purpose, right? Mm-hmm. You're not a bad parent. This is freaking hard. There's so much nuance here for our mental and physical health to think that something that I put into my mouth is going to impact my baby. And the fact that so many facets of our lives are around food and our pleasure from food and socialization of food. And you're not a bad parent if you had a slip and you accidentally ate something or if you did it on purpose. Still mm-hmm. not a bad parent and still doing freaking amazing. And in the moment when you're dealing with the reaction, it can be super hard to, to think through that, to be like, this is going to, we're going to get to the other side of this. It's going to be okay. And I'm not a bad human for being human, for being right. a, a normal human being. And that's okay. Right. Yeah. Especially around like holidays or celebrations. It, it's so hard. Yeah, and I I get those calls too and, and messages that are like, yeah. I was at the holiday dinner and I just wanted a cookie, yeah. And so I had a cookie and now I feel so bad and yeah, um, I'm so and selfish like, and right, yes, and no, you're not. Like of course you wanted a cookie. It'd be right. weird if you didn't. Right, so, yeah. <laughs> be weird if you didn't. I love that. I'm gonna take that response. <laughs> yes. What tips do you have for parents who have to start going through an elimination diet? I know that some parents. You know, the, the barriers are they, they don't like to cook or they don't have a lot of time to cook. And then food can be expensive if you're looking for certain allergen-free foods. 
Yeah, alternative foods are expensive. So the pro is that, you know, nowadays there are lots of options as far as alternative foods are concerned. Um, and there's more and more on the shelves every day, which is great. Um, the downside is that those alternatives are super expensive. Mm-hmm. So some of the things that, that we've done to try to help families, there are some new resources coming out as far as like more allergen friendly restaurants and things of that accord as far as being able to order out if it's cooking just isn't your jam, which mm-hmm. was perfectly fine. And certainly that's a hard part too, because we never plan our life around like something. I have a baby with food allergies, so I need to learn <laughs> right. how to cook. Yeah. Like, of course we didn't plan for that. Craziness. Right. Um, and so there are more resources coming out as far as like being able to order out and things like that. It is so super, super hard. Um, our biggest like recommendations for families is to try to keep things as simple as you can. Right. So we um, offer a food allergy cookbook to try to talk about like, so these are some of the things you can like batch cook and make it easier and make big servings of and freeze. And these are some of the alternatives that are less expensive. And these are the places you can find alternatives that are less expensive. Um, so there are a lot of things that we can do. Really, the number one thing is as many whole foods as we possibly can, as minimally processed as we possibly can. So it ends up being kind of boring um, because we're talking, you know, plain meat and fruits and vegetables, really. And so even for those who may not enjoy cooking, which is totally fine, um, but we're getting down to really the the nitty gritty basics of like, Mm -hmm. here's how, you know, you can prepare some meat and some fruits and veggies. And that's a majority of the diet over the course of elimination. Um, we work with families through like what their baby's magic combo is, right? So if just removing Cosmo protein didn't get us there, then we kind of get into the weeds of like, okay, what is our baby's magic combo that we need to eliminate? Mm-hmm. And so we work with them through elimination diet strategies, reintroduction strategies, is I am of the mindset of you should never, ever remove something for the sake of removing it. So in your case, if you had removed dairy and soy, once you got to happy, healthy baby, I would still be pushing for we should start a reintroduction strategy right away so that you can confirm which, if either, is actually an issue so that you're not just removing two things from your diet for funsies. Whereas for you, you removed one thing and got two resolutions. So we feel pretty confident, like, yep, probably dairy was the problem. But if we remove several things, which isn't uncommon, we need to bring them back. We need to confirm like, oh, yeah, I can eat peanut butter, but definitely eat peanut butter. So we work with parents through reintroduction to confirm baby's magic combo and then eventually getting to solids, right? Because Mm -hmm. that can also be a super stressful time for parents who are dealing with food allergies, right? If you're in the middle of your journey and you're like, okay, when are we going to try cheese when I know that like that through me has projectile vomiting? That's Mm -hmm. not an exciting thing that I'm going to give for my baby. So we walk through all of those different facets and pieces. Mm -hmm. I was surprised when we eliminated dairy once my daughter outgrew it. We never really went back because we just got so used to the alternative. Like we don't drink cow's milk. We don't use cow's milk creamer. I will eat dairy ice cream (laughs) because it is super creamy. But even like our butter, we use the earth balance butter. And so I was surprised at how much when I went to reintroduce like milk. I was like, this tastes disgusting because I got so used to not having it. So now I can't even use milk. Yeah, very similar for me. There's a large portion of products that like I discovered in mm-hmm. our food allergy journey where I was like, oh my gosh, I love 
coconut aminos so much more than I love soy sauce. Like this is way better. Um, and just a slew of things like, oh my goodness, I really love dates. I really love mm-hmm. dates and figs. And I never ate those before. Um, I was on this food allergy journey because I needed to find something sweet. Um, so I do find that in this journey, we do get to like broaden our experience with food. Um, when we have to change our mindset from what we can't eat to what we can. What can I eat? Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually get to the point where we're like, oh, actually, I, I don't really like that food. Not only do I not like it that much, but it doesn't make me, me feel super great when I consume it, which is another interesting thing that happens where families either find like, oh, yeah, I like the alternative better or just like you or they're like, oh, the alternative makes me feel better. Like I actually personally feel better when I'm not eating gluten, for example. And so that's not uncommon to happen, too. I hear a lot of um, information floating around that's often conflicting that's how long it takes for the, whatever food you're eliminating to be gone from the body. And mm-hmm. I've heard like different theories that it doesn't actually take that long, but it's more that the baby's gut takes a while to heal. I, what are your thoughts on that? That's my bread and butter. That's what I study in the lab. Um, and that's where a lot of my passion is, is understanding like not only what do they look like when they transfer to the breast, but how long are they there truly? Because, like I mentioned, I was one that was told it's going to be in your breast milk for at least two weeks. You have to get formula that entire time and pump like a crazy person um, and try to keep your supply up. And then maybe you can get back to breastfeeding. And then I had all of this breast milk stashed, this huge freezer of breast milk. I was like, what am I going to do with all this stuff? And that was my first journey. So along my second journey, I started digging into the actual data. What I found is that it, that's not actually true, which now looking back and I'm sure we can all like giggle at, at the craziness. It's like, that doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense for us to be like, if I eat a piece of cheese today, it's going to be in my breast two weeks from now. Like, where is it hiding? And in that particular case, um, my breast milk is going to be made completely of Ben and Jerry's. Like that's it because it doesn't even make sense. Um, but of course, like you're a new parent and you're told this, and you're like, oh, okay, you know, mm-hmm. that's what they said. So out of the go. And some parents are told even longer. Some parents are told six weeks and eight weeks and just heard that. craziness. Yeah. Craziness. So we started digging in, like, what is the actual transferability look like and how long is it there? So once we consume the protein, it's going to spike in concentration a few hours after ingestion and steadily plummet from there. Usually gone within 24 hours if we're regularly removing breast milk on a normal cadence. So what I mean by that is, well, okay, one, we could just take a second to be like, ah, yay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what I mean by like regular cadence is when we think about transferability, um, often we think about like medications and alcohol, for example. And a lot of times those things will be removed more readily with our cellular metabolism. So whether we move milk from our body or not, our cellular metabolism is going to remove alcohol from our breasts. And that's well known. And as like a little side note, you can have your wine, you do your boo-boo. Um, so that's what's happening on that front. As it relates to the molecules that are these protein fragments, we actually have to remove the breast milk too. So cellular metabolism does a little bit of work to break these down, but more so we have to actually physically remove the breast milk from the breast in order to remove the protein from the body after it's transferred to the breast. So if we're nursing on a fairly regular schedule, our breast milk is going to spike pretty quickly and then steadily plummet from there. Often we see that it's usually gone within eight hours, but 24 hours is our typical like window that we say because some are going to be faster, some are going to be a little bit slower based on your metabolism. So what this means then is not only do we have our timing for our transferability, 
But then there's the timing for baby's reactivity. And just like you kind of alluded to, that's where some of this misinformation gets kind of spread and, and not quite understood is that, okay, if we transfer in 24 hours and then we have two different types of reactions that we talked about a little bit ago, we talked about acute, which is fast, right? Mm-hmm. So those vomiting responses are going to happen within a few hours of ingestion from baby. So that means that if I ate something at noon and I'm peaking transfer at two, my baby's vomiting by four. It's pretty stinking fast, right? Mm-hmm. So those acute reactions, those upper GI or fast rash responses are pretty fast from our consumption. And then on the back end of baby, if we have a chronic reaction, this take a little bit longer. The sweet spot for the amount of time that it usually takes from baby ingesting it from your breast milk is usually about six to eight hours is when we'll start to see the blood response or the mucus response, diarrhea, things like that. So six to eight hours is the sweet spot, but it can take up to 48 hours, especially if baby's not stooling very frequently. So if we're getting like a baby who stools every other day, we have to wait to get the goods. So uh, we may not see the blood response until 48 hours post-baby ingestion. So that's a full three days for reactivity from when we've consumed it, potentially, for those, like, really long, baby's not stooling every day, and it's a chronic reaction, and that's, like, the longest that we typically see is a three-day response. Mm-hmm. Most often, we see it within the same day of ingestion. And then we usually give a couple more days for impact. So most of our elimination diet strategies we do with parents are about five days. So you do the three days for SSC peak and transfer and reactivity timing, and then a few days for impact for us to see is there improvement. And the really big confusion comes from the fact that baby has to heal, right? So if baby's bleeding out of their little bums, they literally have a wound in the gastrointestinal system. Their GI tract is bleeding. So there are little wounds in the gastrointestinal system. So if you think about it like a cut on our hand. If I cut my hand right now today, let's knock on wood, I don't actually do that. I cut my hand right now today um, and I don't put a bandage on it. It's being rubbed against all the time, which is what's happening in the GI tract. Stool is going past um, the uh, little wound all of the time, right? And so as it starts to close, even though I'm not cutting my hand tomorrow, it's still going to bleed, right? So it has to close and heal and that takes time. And the amount of time depends on how deep the cut is and how big the cut is. So if it's a tiny little paper cut, yeah, tomorrow I might feel great and it may not bleed and I may be good. If I give myself a pretty decent gash, um, it's going to take a long time for that to fully heal and for the bleeding to completely stop. And if I accidentally rub up against something, it may come back, right? A little mm-hmm. bit of blood might come back where we see this tapering, baby's getting better, 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 blood is going down, down, down. And then a little bit of school rubs it just the right way and it breaks open the scab a little bit or breaks open the wound a little bit. You see it pop up just a smidge and then it comes back down, down, down. So as we're looking at healing time, that is what can take weeks, especially if baby's really, really reactive. Like my oldest, who's just straight blood, um, it took several weeks for the blood and the diarrhea and all of that to completely heal. Even though she was switched over to a hypoallergenic formula, it still took her several weeks for full healing, even though she wasn't getting the triggers anymore because she just has to heal, right? If we break our arm today, it's still broken tomorrow. We have to let it heal. So I think that's where the misinformation comes from, where we're then told that, oh, you're still seeing blood and it's tapering down because you still have it in your boob, which isn't the case. It's just the baby's healing. The reason why this is so crazy important in this journey is because if you tell parents that when they eat something, it's going to be in their breast for weeks on end, the amount of stress that that causes unnecessarily because it's not true is astronomical what that means for me is that if i accidentally drank that latte from starbucks then my breast milk is now poison 
words from a medical provider, poison for weeks and that my baby is going to get that particular protein in my breast for weeks on end, which is not true. And it also tells parents that they have to start over, right? Which is very common where they get told like, oh yeah, you accidentally had that latte and now you have to start the whole clock over. So you have to wait another eight weeks for your baby to get better. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Um, We take baby's lead. So if baby reacts, okay, we know the timing for reaction and then we should start to see healing after that. And if baby doesn't react, then we say like, holla freaking Luya, I either didn't transfer <laughs> or, you know, baby's mm-hmm. re- not reactive anymore or whatever it may be. But it puts so much stress on the parent to say, like, if you make a mistake, you're going to hurt your baby for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it's going to be in your body for weeks and weeks and weeks. And you can't breastfeed for weeks and weeks and weeks. Some parents are straight up told, like, oh, Matt, you had a slip test and I have to switch to formula for two weeks. No, um, mm-hmm. you don't have to. For many, most, you can continue to breastfeed through it. For some, you can give that 24 hours for a peak and clearance and then get back to breastfeeding. But there are so many other options when you actually share the true data behind transfer at clearance. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me of another thing that I see often on your Instagram is the stress and anxiety. And you you talk about how some parents can actually develop PTSD from trying to breastfeed with an elimination diet. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's a big part. That's a great caveat segue over to, you know, talking about the, the mental health part. So there's a huge physical health part, our, our nutritional needs, making sure that we're getting in all the nutrients that we need so that our body is complete, so that our breast milk is complete. But well attached to that is our mental health and having so much stigma around the, like the shame and the guilt and what did I do wrong and being up at 2 a.m. with both your children, you're all crying, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and already being in a postpartum state where our hormones are freaking everywhere. And many of us are already dealing with other mental health issues after we've given birth now, PPD and PPA and other issues. Mm-hmm. Tacking on the fact that now, like, food is the enemy, right? And, um, and I could really truly feel like that. It can really truly feel like I'm scared to put something into my mouth. I am afraid of my food. I am petrified of uh, the next diaper that I'm going to open. Is it going to be full of blood? For example, my youngest had um, what was called FPIs, which is a severe vomiting response or severe bloody diarrhea response typically to oats. So both my children had many, many triggers. The oats specifically is the fun one for me because that's where, what we had most reactions to for my youngest. And she has now outgrown that. And even to this day, her and her dad love eating oatmeal for breakfast. He does apples and he bakes them down and he adds them to the oatmeal. It's like a whole event. Literally, almost four years later, when I see her eating oatmeal, I get her palpitations and my palms start to sweat. I'm like, oh my gosh, is she going to react? And I know she's not. Like, I know she's outgrown it, but it's still like, it's just in me of like, oh my gosh. Um, and same thing for like, if I see a little spot on one of the girls and I'm like, oh no, is she reacting? Right. Did we eat something? Did something happen? And your brain immediately goes there. The addition into this and like not having the support and love through it and told that it's not your fault. And given empathy through your journey just compounds us, right? It makes it so much worse. Um, and so we talk about that. And certainly if you're somebody who's listening who um, is experienced that, definitely jump on some of those um, Instagram posts about PTSD because you read through just story on story on story. And it's tiny bit heartbreaking. I'll admit that. But it's so wonderful to know that you're not alone and be like, oh, my gosh, I feel that way, too. 
Another example of this is like, I'm not having any more babies. I'm super done. After our first journey, I was like, I don't know if I can have any more children. Like, this is so hard on me. I'm really struggling. Um, and to be super honest and transparent, in the midst of my journey of my elimination diet with my oldest, I ended up kind of falling into alcoholism. I found a wine that I could consume that didn't elicit a response in my baby. And I found that after we were all done with our elimination diet and I could eat freely again, I couldn't stop drinking. And so I'm now sober um, a little over two years. But that was truly an issue that came of this that I never thought would be a problem. So very similar. I went through this journey with my oldest and then we like basically bartered. I bartered with my husband. I was like, okay, we're going to have one more baby and then I can't do any more. Like I can't do any more because um, I can't go through another food allergy baby. Um, so when we had our second, I had them uh, do a tubal because I was like, this is the last journey. And I don't know if she's going to have food allergies or not, but whether she does or not, like I can't do any more. And if she did, and it was a whole thing. And of course, it was way different than the first time around. I was very grateful that I was super done having babies and I could keep that in the back of my mind of like, this is the last time. This is the last yeah. time. <laughs> um, but that's a big deal when you have families, parents who are like, I really want to have four children. And they're like, I'm only having one now because there's no freaking be flopping away. That takes a toll too. There's a lot. There's a lot there. Mm-hmm. You have given us so much great information. I myself have learned like a tongue just talking to you and I love your energy and your passion. I love your website and your Instagram. So much information is given on there. You have a subscription too, right? For yeah, families. we have a, a food allergy support package. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a full year of um, personal content for navigating each side of your, each piece of your journey with um, one-on-one consults baked into it. And deep dives with experts like IBCLCs and registered dietitians and um, naturopathic doctors so that you can navigate each side of your journey. So, and you get plugged into our food allergy community, which is fellow warriors that are in the midst of this and and chat with them and have a, have a real sense of community and love because this journey can be very isolating. So this can help open this up to be like, you're definitely not alone. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes it's just nice to be like, my aunt was an a-hole and put dairy in the Christmas cookies or something. Like yes. <laughs> With yes. people and who get it. Like, oh, yeah. Hi, Aunt Margie. Yes. <laughs> so where can, where can people find you if they want to connect with you and learn more about you? Yes, absolutely. So definitely checking out the website, freetofeed.com. We have a ton of information and helpful content there. You can find the consoles there and the food allergy support packet there and all of the other crazy things we have going on. And then certainly on Instagram. So Instagram is where I am most active. Um, we have accounts on all the other platforms and where they're posting and all of that. But I personally run all of our social media platforms. I personally run the Instagram account. So if you want to see a scientist attempting to dance to booby facts, like that's where it's at. <laughs> Um, trying to, to learn how to do Instagram, um, but we're over on Facebook and TikTok and LinkedIn and Twitter, all those other fun stuff. But certainly over on Instagram is where the most active and I run all of it. So if there is a question that you have from this conversation where you're like, oh my gosh, I need to know more about this or I need peer reviewed journal articles on what you're talking about or whatever it may be. Um, I want to be involved in your next research study, which that's coming up soon too. (laughs) Reach out to me. You can either email through um, the website or info at free to feed.com, or you can simply send me a DM on Instagram. That's always me. And I answer every single one of my DMs because I've been where you're at right now and know how important it is to have somebody on the other side. 
Love it. Thank you so much again for the time today and all the information. This has been one of the most fun and educational um, episodes that recorded to date. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Shelly. I super, super appreciate it. And also, thank you for the vital work that you do in helping parents and helping lactation warriors. I super appreciate it and um, love what you're doing as well. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaffIBCLC.com, where you can check out our online parenting community, The Baby Bistro. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaffIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave a rating on iTunes so that we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks.